your Bible, if you have it and would like to do so, and turn to 1 Peter 1. Last week, we concluded, we were speaking about um, eternal security. And considering verses 4 and 5, that we are begotten again into a lively hope to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away. Scripture says, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So it spoke about us being kept or guarded through faith unto the salvation that is ready to be revealed. We'll talk more uh, in the coming weeks about the reality that our salvation, like with many other theological concepts, is something that um, does have a present reality, but also has a future reality that we've not actually realized yet. And so this evening we pick up in verse 6, and this is a new chunk for us. Verses 6 through 9 we'll be focusing in now. And the scriptures say this, I'll read the King James, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom the Though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And we'll focus in on that first phrase, as we saw up here in the red, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold Temptations. My translation, in which ye are rejoicing. Now, as we think about that idea, in which ye are rejoicing, obviously this is leading, uh, this is connected to something else, something in the past. I don't have it up on the screen, but if you want to look in your Bibles, what is the thing in which we are rejoicing that he's talking about here? Probably... Um, Best to understand it in the context just there in verse 5. What is it? Yes, that our salvation, right? The salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So that is the context here in which. Ye are rejoicing since it is necessary a little while now for you to be grieved by means of many temptations, is how I translated that myself. Here is our um, diagram. You notice that it's connected to... Oh, you notice nothing really in that, do you? Let me see if I can make that clearer for you. A little bit better. Um, you notice it's connected to salvation. And uh, the, the main thought here is ye are rejoicing right here. Oops. What happened there? Let's try again. Right, right there. Ye are rejoicing in whom or in which. And this would be in the salvation which we have. So in this we 
rejoice. And then he'll, he'll give a little caveat, though or if or since it is necessary for a little while that will be grieved by means of many temptations. But let's start out here as we consider this. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. That's how it's, it's described in the King James. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. And can somebody read for me that Greek word? Audrey. Agaliaste. Yep, you had it. And this one is one that you know the parsing of. Now, as I say that, there's a contraction here. So it's going to be slightly different from a standard because you see above the alpha there, there's a circumflex which tells us that two two letters have contracted. Here's the lexical form, agaliao, and so based upon the lexical form and the paradigms which you know, can you parse this for me? Sophia? No, parse the red one. Yeah, the, the, the bottom one is a present active indicative first person singular. That's the lexical form, right? Can you parse the one in red? Now, a part of it is given away by the translation. Right? Ye greatly rejoice. Which means you know one part of it. Okay, let me ask you this. Based upon ye greatly rejoice, what do you know about it? About the word? Sarah? Sarah? No, just ba based on the translation. <clears throat> be, be a little more objective than that. What, what about the pronoun? Ye? What's ye? Second person what? Plural, right? The would be second person singular. Ye is second person plural. Is it like Christmas break or something? <laughs> second person plural, right? So we know it's a second person plural just based on the translation. So now go through your paradigms and which second person plural would fit with that ending mostly. You're not going to get it perfectly because there's a contraction. Let's go through it. O, ace, a, amen, ete. That doesn't fit, right? Let's do present middle passive indicative. Amai, a, etai, almatha, estha, antai. There it is. Estha. So the epsilon contracts with the alpha. Uh, with the alpha. And it creates a... It stays an alpha. But a circumflex goes over it. What's there? What is? Oh, Greeley? Yes. Well, we can Greeley rejoice too. 
But thank you. I'll try to fix that. Um, so it's esther, and then the epsilon contracts with the alpha, and it puts the circumflex above it. But you could still probably have figured that out if you know if you'd have gone through your paradigms, noticed the esther, saw the ending. Aha! There's nothing on front that changes, which means we know it's not an imperfect or aorist, right? Because because that would change something up front. We know it's not a future because there's no extra sigma uh, after the alpha. And so we know that we're in the present and then we just need to decide between the active and the middle passive. And we come to middle passive through the S the ending. And then as we think of greatly rejoicing, we realize it to be in the middle. So um, it is a verb. It's a present middle and um, I give both middle and passive here. Present, middle, indicative, second person, plural. We rejoice. Okay, now that we've done the academic part, let's talk about this. We greatly rejoice in the salvation that is to come. Now, we haven't really hit on it deeply yet because we haven't dug super far into 1 Peter. But one of the primary concepts in 1 Peter is going to be in the midst of, uh, is going to be testimony in the midst of suffering. And a, a dynamic of the testimony that we have in the midst of suffering is the reality that our joy is not rooted in what's happening. Our joy is re, is rooted in what we have in heaven. And this is the idea that uh, Peter has spent all of this great description on our salvation being kept by the power of God and the inheritance that's coming that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away and it's reserved, it's waiting in heaven for us and the reality of our adoption and our election and all of these things and he says you rejoice in this, you're not rejoicing he doesn't say you rejoice in your paycheck, he doesn't say you rejoice in, in the, the physical circumstances he doesn't say you rejoice in your government he says you rejoice in the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You look towards something and you rejoice in that. That's faith. That's hope. And then he goes on to say, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So he's, he's acknowledging that not only do we rejoice in that which is to come, but that's in spite of the fact that at this time, there's some heaviness. Ye are in heaviness, he says. Does somebody want to uh, read for me that Greek word, Bell? Lupethentes. Very good. Lupethentes. And then how about the lexical form? Sophia? Lupeo. Very good. And this word literally means to make sorrowful or to distress. This is a participle. That verbal adjective modifies a substantive, relates itself to the verb, and it's an aorist. So, um, this is speaking generally. Typically, we would designate it, say, a past completed action, but it's not always in the past. That's a, it's a gross generalization of the aorist tense, uh, but it works. And uh, so, he's saying that this is something that we are in, and notice it's passive voice. So ye are receiving heaviness. It's being done to you. This isn't you're throwing yourself into trials. This isn't you're, tri you're, you're hurting yourself. This is trials are happening to you. 
manifold temptations are happening to you. This is something that, that you're not necessarily asking for, but it's happening. And um, so that's the idea there of heaviness. Heaviness is coming through manifold temptations. And this is not a, a verb or a verbal. Uh, it's the word perasmos. It's used 21 times in the New Testament. 20 times it's translated temptation or temptations. One time it's translated try, like to prove something, to test it, to try it. And here's just a few of the times where it, it comes about. In Matthew 6.13, in, in the, the prayer of Jesus Christ, what we would call the model prayer, he says, and lead us not into temptation. It's this word. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation... Also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So we see Jesus teach us to pray that the Lord would not lead us into these temptations. We see uh, Paul speak of these temptations as something which will come, but it's never so much that we cannot escape, that we cannot bear them. There's, God will never bring something into our lives that he knows will break us. Um, Paul spoke in Galatians 4. We, we talked about it just recently about uh, the temptation which was in his flesh. And we don't exactly know what that was. We uh, attributed, we thought about the thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. And, and think that it might be uh, something having to do with his eyes. But he says, my temptation which was in my flesh he despised not. So he used this word to talk about something that was happening to his body. And then James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And so in all of these cases we see this idea of something that comes into our lives, there are difficulties in our lives, uh, some possibly spiritual, certainly uh, physical, um, the, the difficulties that come, there's none that we cannot bear. They are not something that we bring upon ourselves, but something that is, is brought to bear on us. Um, and can speak of temptation to sin, can speak of the trials of our life, um, can speak of all of those things. And uh, I mention here, contrary to the claims of the popular health and wealth teaching today, God does not promise the Christian life is without trial. God does not promise that the Christian life is without trial. In fact, a Christian life without trial would not be what we would desire. If we're looking through spiritual eyes. And why would that be? Why is it that you would not want a life free from temptation, the heaviness of manifold temptation? Robin? Yeah, you wouldn't grow. Children, let me ask you a question. If mom didn't push you to study and to learn, where would you be in your academic pursuits? Hmm? Still in kindergarten, probably. 
if if you don't have somebody pushing you expecting something of you stretching you you don't grow one of uh, the worst teachers and the best teachers I ever had was in college it's one of my computer science teachers and he was hard and he had high expectations and I had to take several classes with him and I dreaded the classes I took with him but at the end of those classes I looked back upon what I had known and what I did know I looked at the computer programs he asked us to write And I was always amazed that for all that he expected of us, somehow we rose to the occasion and got done what he asked us to get done. Now he he could have pushed us much less and it would have been an easier class and it still would have been academically challenging. But he set the bar very high and in doing so, he forced us through... Nights of wailing and gnashing of teeth, looking for the one semicolon that was out of place in the dumb computer program. Through very long, late nights, through difficulties, through skipping meals, through all of the difficult things that had to happen, it stretched us, it grew us, it made us better programmers. So notice what we read in in verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So as he speaks of the, the if need be, the, the potential necessity of heaviness, of sorrow, of um, difficulty through manifold many temptations... He says that it is so that we might be found unto the praise and the honor and the glory of God. And he likens it to gold that is tried in the fire. So he says, in order that the trying of your faith might be found. And then if we slide down to... Uh, This bottom section here, he says, The trying of your faith as gold, which is by means of fire, destroyed, but approved. Destroyed, but approved. And this is an analogy, of course. When we think of gold... The purification process of a metal, I've preached about it before, is a process of melting it down in order to either burn off impurities or so that when the metal melts, the impurities bubble up to the top and then you can remove them. So it's a process of removing the impurities, but in order to do so, you have to show that metal the fire, and you have to melt it down so that it can be reforged more pure. And Peter says, the trial of your faith, 
being much more precious. He says it's much more precious than of gold. And he says this gold, uh, it's, it perisheth. It, 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 it can be destroyed. And, and, and you can translate that two ways. Uh, King James said gold that perisheth though it's tried with fire or approved with fire. Or it could be, as I kind of give it there, I, I make them substantial. It's destroyed. It perishes, but it's approved. And that would be by means of fire. So it could go either way. Um, on that as far as I could tell. Maybe not, um, but I believe that, that it could um, be translated either way. But either way you take it, the gold is not something that's eternal, but it has to be tried by fire. And it has to be melted down in order to be reforged. Sophia? Yes, yeah. So the idea is that we, like gold, are the trial of our faith, he says, is much more precious than gold. And just as gold would have to be tried and cleansed through fire, so too we have to. And it's a much more precious process for us, for us to see ourselves going through. It's, a, it's, it's something that we should not hate. It's something that we should accept, and if at all possible, welcome. It's never fun, but what it does is it purifies us, is the idea here. And it makes us, as it says, it brings us to a place where we can be found unto the praise and the honor and the glory of Christ at His appearing. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So the trial of your faith. Can someone read me the Greek word there? Audrey? Good. Dokimion. And this uh, means to test. And the idea is the testing unto approval. The testing unto... Uh, um, when you buy a product, sometimes you'll open that product and maybe it, it's uh, electronic or whatever and you'll see a stamp on it as an uh, inspection number and that it was inspected and, and there's a stamp and it's got the person's name on it or it's got the inspector's number on it and it says inspected by so and so. And that is the approval. That, that product was tested and was approved as being functioning. That's the idea here. The trial of your faith, the testing of your faith unto approval. The testing by means of, or for the means of approving you, making you what you need to be, a fit vessel. It's used two times in the New Testament, one time trying, one time trial, here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and then in James 1 verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh, Patience. So James tells us not to despise the trying of our faith because it works in us patience. And then he says, and let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then we see it here in 1 Peter as well. Uh, and both times they're telling us, don't hate this. Appreciate it. You don't have to love trial. Nobody loves it. Nobody, nobody enjoys it. But appreciate it for what it does for you. And understand that it's for your best. So, in 1 Peter, the trying of our faith is called precious. 
Notice the context in James for what I read you in James 1.3. And I have a typo there too. Great. I'll have to change that one too. Uh, for James 1.2-4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy, he says, when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. He says, count it all joy. Reckon it to be joyful. Reckon it to be a good thing when ye fall into temptation. Because patience is worked out of temptation. And um, that works in us perfection. So, the trying of our faith builds faith. Faith brings patience. Patience brings perfection. Patience is waiting on the Lord. Patience is expecting Him. Patience is the hope of our salvation. Patience is learning to do things God's way even in the midst of difficulty. A patient parent might be that parent who is going to stick to the plan even when the child is being... Very trying. In a parent's life, patience has to be learned. In a Christian's life, patience must be learned. And that comes through the trial of our faith. And that brings us to perfection, which is completion. Which is when we are everything that God wants us to be. So we count it as joy. We ought to. When we fall into diverse temptations. And then he says that the trying of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Here's that word precious. Can someone read it for me? Sophia? Timios, uh, I'd say. Timios. And this word means valuable, costly. So James says count it all joy. And Peter calls our, our trials Precious, costly, valuable. This is that word that is used to speak of things that are uh, precious to you. If you have something that's maybe breakable or something that's uh, very nice, it's uh, perhaps an electronic or maybe it's something that's made of glass and it's, it's valuable or it's, it's, it's special to you and you don't want it to be broken so you carry it very carefully and you put it somewhere where the little kids can't get it, it's timios. It's honorable, beloved, valuable. Another interesting word to talk about our trials the scriptures tell us that testing is not an easy process, but it's a blessed process. The blessing of trial gives us strength to endure the trial because we endure it in faith, knowing it's working in us something special. Here's a quote by um, Dr. DeHaan in his book, Broken Things. He says, The richest, the fullest, the most fruitful lives are those that have been in the crucible of testing. That... Um, have, that should be that, have been broken upon the wheel of tribulation. We have no right to believe that God will do anything with our lives until He has broken us. There are in this world few entirely unbroken lives that are useful to God. There are few men and women who can fulfill, fulfill their own hopes and plans without interruptions and disappointments all along the way. But man's disappointments are ever God's appointments. And what we believe are tragedies are only blessings in disguise and the very opportunities through which God wishes to exhibit His love and grace. 
trials are called precious by Peter and thus by God through the Holy Spirit. James says, count it all joy when you fall into those trials. And he says, it's more precious than gold that perisheth. This is a participle here. Can anybody read that participle for me, Audrey? Good. Apalumenu. And how about the lexical form? Bell? Apalumi. Very good. This is to fully destroy or to perish. It's a present middle participle, genitive, neuter, singular. So the participle is in a mid, uh, is in the middle voice. It indicates not that the gold is, is being destroyed, but rather that it is something that's being deteriorating or aging or, or, or thus by its nature headed for destruction. Uh, it can also be um, that which is um, destroying away. We could say melting in here as well. Uh, could be a process of that. So the idea uh, of, of something that is temporal and something that is destructible, though it be tried. Uh, how about that? Can somebody read me? That one. Audrey. Say it again. Close. It's not Dakimas. What's that? Uh, I don't have my pointer tonight, but what's what's uh, this letter? I don't know if you can even see my pointer there. Okay. What's that letter? What? Someone tell me what letter that is. a zeta. Try again with it as a zeta. Dakimaz amenu. Yes. Did you say maz? Did you have a z sound in there? Okay, I thought it was an s. I'm sorry that I was hearing. Dakimaz amenu. And then dakimazo. Sorry, I just spoiled that one. Dakimazo is the lexical form. To test or to approve. We saw the similar form uh, just before. And this is also a participle a verbal adjective modifying a substantive in the sentence. This is a present passive. So this is being tested. This is something that's happening to us, that we are being tested or approved. And he says that the trying of our faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found. Let's go ahead and read this one. Go ahead, Sophia. Urethe, very good. And how about the lexical form? Audrey? Close. Uh, add, add the, it's a um, um, rough breathing mark there on that first one. So that would change it to a huh sound. Good. Hurisco. Hurisco. Um, and once again, that is indicative of an English word that's based on it. Hurisco, meaning to find. Can anyone tell me the Greek or the English word that that might be based off of? Hurisco, to find. Sarah? You said it. Horoscope, right? You check your horoscope. I hope you don't. But people that check their horoscope... Um, to to find out what 
what somebody thinks is going to happen to them. Um, Horisco, that's where it comes from. And this is an aorist passive, so once again, it's an aorist. And, uh, I mean, excuse me, it's a passive, so might be found, something that's happening to you, that, that you might be found, that something might find in you, that, was, that God might find in you, something worthy of praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And notice here, this is in the subjunctive mood, which means this is not something that will be, this is, God is temp- testing you, And if you yield yourself, count it all joy, yield yourself, and find yourself coming through these temptations victorious, which He has enabled you to do through the Holy Spirit, then you will be brought to a place of where you're set up for praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. But that's not a guarantee. There's no guarantee of that. It's it's based upon whether or not you submit yourself to the trial and obey the Lord Jesus Christ through it. And that is what brings us to the place. Peter speaks of what God wants for for Christians in this life, not what is guaranteed for Christians in this life. That's verse 7. Any questions on that? Okay. And then this, oh, there's a little bit more here. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. Can anyone read me that word? Audrey? Pretty close. Can someone clean it up a little bit? Apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. And that sounds like our English word. Not octopus. Uh, apocalypse, right? Apocalypse. Which we take to mean the destruction at the end of the world, but, and rightfully so. But the apocalypsis, the word literally means manifestation or disclosure. It's, and it's, it's used... Of a second coming. Now, it's, this word is used 18 times in the New Testament. It's used by Simeon in the temple. It's used by Paul, and it's used by Peter, and it's used by John. It means a manifestation or appearing, and almost every single one of them is speaking toward uh, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Um, not every single one, but almost every single one of them. Uh, not all the second coming, some the first advent, uh, but all of them referring to, or most of them referring to, His coming. Now as we think about that, it's interesting in our society that apocalypse has come to mean some terrible event, when in fact the apocalypse, uh, as the word is transliterated is simply the the appearing the manifestation the word has has lost some of the the root meaning and yet people talk about the apocalypse as if it's an unavoidable event as if there will be an apocalypse little do they consider the reality that by saying there will be an apocalypse they're kind of saying that there's going to be a manifestation of Christ um that's what, the, that's what the apocalypse implies. The manifestation, the disclosure, the appearing of Christ. So Peter tells the church, 
that, the, that their trials of faith serve a purpose, and that purpose, namely, is to purify them. The eventual object of this purification by trial is that when Jesus appears, we might be found unto the praise and honor and glory of God at His appearing. So let's just hammer this out a little bit. How does our purification bring about Jesus' praise? I mean, think about it. When Jesus returns and we are called, uh, well, of course, the rapture will be called away and then we will return with Him at the actual second coming proper. We'll be, resur- we'll be in our, our resurrected bodies. We will be glorified. We'll already be perfect in Christ, right? He'll present us blameless and spotless before the throne. So what does it matter? Why should He have to try us on th- in this life if we're already going to be 24 karat gold in the next? What, what, why does He have to burn it away in this life? Sophia? Okay, be a shining light. Like it? Other thoughts? Or elaboration? Yeah, so the idea is that as, as He purifies us, we become conformed to the image of Christ. We tell people. Uh, we bring other people into the kingdom of, of Christ. We are um, manifesting already the love that we have for God and the failure of Satan's kingdom as we are living for Christ's kingdom. Uh, we show this to the world. As we overcome the world, we show this to angels as we overcome sin and temptation. And so in all of these contexts, we reflect glory. And at Jesus Christ's coming, we come with Him. And as we are around Him, we will have finished our course. We will finish our race. uh, And we will be with Him as trophies of His grace. And it will all be a, a, a... the, the culmination, the climax of that which He did in our lives and the patience that we had to wait for the hope that is to come even in the midst of the difficulties that we're going through now. It'll be a manifestation, a declaration of how much we trusted God to deliver us so much so that we were willing to suffer in this life so that God would deliver Uh, expecting God to deliver us from those trials and that we'd have rewards in heaven in the life to come. Other thoughts or questions? Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So we come down to this chunk of our diagram. Uh, we have uh, several more relative clauses here. So um, we just spoke about the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then we have this relative, whom 
clause, that is, whom having not seen, ye love. So we love him, though we have not seen him. And then uh, we have a second relative clause here that comes down to this bit. In whom ye are rejoicing with joy inexpressible and glorious, having seen not just now, having not seen just now is the idea there, but believing, receiving the end of of your faith which is the salvation of the soul so we see here whom having not seen ye love here's our first verbal having seen it's definitely a participle Sophia Edotes good and someone reading the lexical form Bell Edo, good. And this is the word to see or to perceive. We see two different seeing words here. We see Edo, and then we'll also see Harao. Both of them mean to see. Um, they have a, perhaps a little bit of a different flavor, but it's hard to nail down exactly what the difference is. So this is a, a participle, whom having not seen, or having uh, seen is the verb, having not seen is what we see in the context, ye love. It's a perfect active. Perfect... Uh, the perfect tense being the tense that typically designates a past completed action with continuing results. Or the idea in this case would be a very complete idea whom you have never seen. Never in the past, you've just, you, it's, it's never happened, you've never seen him. But you love him anyway. And here is ye love. Can somebody read me that? Sophia? Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. As a matter of fact, that kind of flashed through my head as well. The idea that we love him because he first loved us, and he's the one that we haven't seen, but we love because we know that he's loved us. Um, it's also very important here. I don't think Peter was just generalizing. Um, the idea that we have not seen him, that no man has seen him. And it says at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So he, he admits that those who were at this time, they had not seen him. Um, they do not see him. He, he's not revealing himself to them personally. He's revealing himself through the apostles. And that's important for us to understand here. Um, did you want to read it too, Sophia? Good. Agapate. And then how about the lexical form, Bell? Agapao. And you all can tell me what that means, so go ahead, Bell. Good, good. So you're you're starting to catch the trend then. Um, that the majority of them will of course end in the with with the omega, not always. Um, some of them you'll see in the lexical form technically ending in the middle because it's what's called a deponent verb. And deponent verbs are never seen in their present active indicative. They're only seen in present middle passive indicatives. So there will be certain words like logizomai that you'll, you'll see and their lexical form ending will be amai instead of o. 
But good. So you, you guess the agapao. Now, um, this is another one that you can know. Once again, you, you notice the circumflex, which means there's a contraction. But you know this one. Can somebody parse it for me? Go ahead, Bell. What's the rest? First person. Hmm? First person singular. Well, the the lexical form is yes, the bottom one. But what about the red one? Sophia. Oh, oh Audrey, do you have it? That's right. O-S-A, amen, ete, right? And we have the contraction, the same contraction you saw in the last verb, where the epsilon contracts into the alpha, and it, it remains an alpha, but it gains the circumflex. So we see that contraction, and you got it. Good, we're getting back into this here. Present, active, indicative, second person plural of agapao. And um, so very standard verb here. Um, present tense, it's something you, you are loving him. It's something we are doing. It is a present linear action, ongoing action. Ye meaning uh, the second person plural, the, the group he's talking to. He, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though now ye see him not, yet believing. So ye see him not is in the context. Let's talk about this. Um, is this one that... Whoops. No, it's, it, this is, okay. Um, can someone read me the participle there? Sophia? Horontes, good. And how about the lexical form? Audrey? Horeo, uh, probably a bit more accurate based upon how we say it. I would, I would pronounce it horao, but yeah, you're probably more accurate as to how we've been learning. So, and this is a present active participle. So, uh, and this means to see with the eyes. Remember, we just saw uh, edo as a word to see. This is the other word to see, horao. There's actually one more as well, which is more common than either of these. Um, and horao or edo, we almost always see. I think we do always see it only in the perfect tense. This we see in the present tense here. Um, horao, to see with the eyes, to recognize. Recognize, And so we've got the context here. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing. How about this participle? Sophia. Pistuantes. Very good. And then the lexical form down there. Audrey. Pistuo. And this one, um, does anyone uh, kind of, yeah, well, I guess we kind of have the word there. Um, it means to have faith or to believe, right? And this is one that we've seen very regularly. Uh, we saw it regularly in first and second and third John as well, pistuo, which means to believe or to have faith. Once again, a present active participle, nominative, masculine, plural. So just... We are having faith. We, we, are, we are not seeing Him, but we believe in Him. And as we do so, he says, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Can anyone read me? Audrey. 
Agaliasta, good. And how about the lexical form? Sophia? Agaliao. And I think we already, this is the same one we parsed before, so can somebody parse this one for me? Again, parse it again, just for practice. Now go through your paradigms. Which one is it? That's right. Present, middle, passive, right? Present, middle, passive, indicative. Amai, a, atai, amatha, estha. Second person plural of present, middle, passive, indicative. Estha. Contraction. Epsilon contracts into the alpha. Circumflex goes above it of agaliao, which again means to um, love, oh, whoops, doesn't mean to, did we have, oh, we, we had love, yeah, so I, I didn't change this one, my apologies for that, but it doesn't mean to love, uh, it means to rejoice, to jump for joy, we rejoice with, and then he says, joy unspeakable and full of glory, and once again, present, middle, uh, it's the same that we saw before, so we've bookended here, he says that we greatly rejoice in our salvation at the beginning of verse 6, and then he says at the end of verse 8 that we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and notice why. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So this whole part about trials and um, loving Christ is bookended with rejoicing in our salvation. It's what he wants us to understand here. Rejoice in your salvation. You rejoice in what is to come. You rejoice because it's the end of your faith. The trial of your faith brings you to the end of your faith. You know the end. The trial is intended to build your faith to bring you to the end of your faith. And we'll... we'll um, yeah, there's still there's enough to do that. We'll go ahead and stop there, I think. Um, so, so we love Him, therefore we rejoice. Our salvation is assured, it's kept, therefore we rejoice. We'll pick up there next week. Any questions?